Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Wine and Women Awards. I'm Michelle, and with me, of course, is Diana, as always. And uh, joining us tonight is Lynn Povich, author of The Good Girls Revolt, which is right here. Uh, hi, Lynn. Thank you so much for coming this evening. We're so excited to have you on with us. Well, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for uh, featuring the book. Absolutely. You know, when we were... Um, towards the end of last year, we were starting to talk about the books that we wanted to um, to read for the year, and we had both just finished watching the Amazon series, and anyway, I figured out that it was based on a book, and I, I texted Diane, and I said, wouldn't it be great if we could do Good Girls Revolt, and Lynn Povich actually said, or agreed to come onto the show with us? <laughs> So I think the day that I got your response to my email, I sent her like 16 text messages going, you have to answer me right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the lovely things about having the book been made into a series is that young women like you all um, and men um, know the story because, you know, you, you write a book, you hope people read it. But certainly if you're on a streaming service or cable or something like that, young people really do watch those things. And the response I've gotten from your generation has just been fantastic. And, you know, that's, that's really why I wrote the book. I, I, I wanted our history to be known, but I also wanted it to be known by your generation as well as the rest of the world. Well, definitely. And I remember when I first saw the, the preview, because I'm, you know, I just graduated with my bachelor's in journalism and I'm starting to you know, work into uh, journalism as a career. So when I saw this, I text Diana. I said, this is my show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see women journalists as, uh, as the leads. <laughs> yeah, it was, and that's, that's actually one of, one, of our one of my questions. I mean, so this is the list that I have for you. <laughs> um, I don't think we'll get through all of them tonight. Um, but that was one of them. We're going to give it the good old college try. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it like to watch your book be made into um, a series like that? You know, when I was approached um, to sell the option of the book, I uh, my lawyer told me that I would not have any creative control and that only studios today control everything, even producers. I mean, unless you're Steven Spielberg or somebody. But... Um, and so knowing I was not going to be able to control a character named Lynn Povich, um, I, I decided that I would only sell the option if it, if it was fictionalized. So when I was approached um, by Linda Opst, who's the um, executive producer and has to deal with Sony, um, I told Linda I would sell it to her. She's a very successful Hollywood producer. She did Sleepless in Seattle. She did Interstellar. She did Hot in Cleveland. Um, so I knew she'd get it done, and she, I knew Linda when she was an editor at the New York Times Sunday Magazine. So she's my era. She understands journalism. Um, but I said it had to be fictionalized. And so I knew. So she agreed, and that was the basis on which it went forward. And they wrote the scripts and the pilot based on fictionalized characters. Um, and they really fictionalize the characters. I mean, people say, who are you? But there is no me. I mean, they really sort of mixed it up enough that no one is identifiable. So once once I made that decision, I sort of figured they would kind of 
do, you know, embellish a lot of things, which of course they did. But I have to say that the basic arc of the story, a group of young women at a news magazine, you know, or real sort of waking up and being becoming conscious of their situation as women and beginning to organize, that was pretty accurate following of our story. And um, so you mentioned just now that there's no real, you know, this character is this person. But as I was reading, I was, you know, making notes in the margins and texting Diana going, okay, I, I think I figured out who might be based on, who this character might be based on. Um, but it must have been a lot of fun to to see how they took your your real life experience and turn it into a TV show like that. Yeah, I mean, they had to develop, obviously, the, a lot of backstories of these young women and a lot of relationships in the newsroom. Um, I knew there'd be a lot of sex, which there was. On the other hand, you know, there was a lot of sex in the 60s and 70s. So, um, but, you know, they show it a lot more on television than uh, than my generation is sort of used to. Um, but I... But, you know, I thought they did a good job of sort of capturing the excitement of working in a newsroom, you know, the sense of the times and all that was going on outside in, in, the, in our culture in America and, um, and sort of what these girls were up against when they, when they had to sort of fight for, the, for themselves. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And uh, let's see, Diana, did you have one? <laughs> all night. I yeah. <laughs> well, I want to touch base on the um, selling the rights. Almost everybody who writes a book or is in the process of writing a book or is going to write a book kind of almost dreams of the idea that their book will be turned into a movie or a television show. Um, so it's, it was really interesting to hear that you're, you were very um, guarded about it and very protective about the story. I mean, obviously, because it's your story and it was nonfiction in your life. Um, so did they just, I'm assuming they just approached you, was it out of the blue about the book or was yeah, it? You know, a lot of people just went to my website and um, approached me through my website because there's a way, there's an email address for me. Um, and I, I would say I, I got an enormous number. I mean, the book, I must say, got a very nice attention when it came out in 2012. So I immediately started getting just over the transom through my website from TV and movie people in Los Angeles. And I didn't know any of them. Um, mm -hmm. Some were just readers, but some were, were major producers and stuff. And so I hired this wonderful lawyer and I said, I don't know who any of these people are or anything. And he said, well, there are a couple of really good people here who might be able to get it done. But, you know, once he said I wouldn't be able to control it, I just told everybody no, that I wasn't interested in selling the option. I was very, as you said, it was my story and my friend's story, and then I didn't. And, and Linda Opst contacted me a year later, and that's when I thought, well, she actually could get it done, but she also understands the story. She was a journalist. She's you know, not quite my age, she's younger, but she was around, she was the beneficiary of the Times women's suit. So mm -hmm. she knew what the Times felt like. And I trusted her to sort of get that part of the story right. Mm -hmm. And you're right, I mean, it's so unusual anything gets done. I'm, I was sort of shocked how quickly <laughs> they sold it, how quickly Amazon did a yeah. pilot, and then how quickly 
after the pilot was up in November, Amazon decided in January they were going to go ahead in 10 parts. And they yeah. was on the, it was on the air in October. Yeah, it was really quick where it was, because um, I've heard things like I've known of some books that have been up for option since, or at least sold for option like 10 years ago and nothing's been done. And then this is just, it sounds like it was very quickly. It was a matter of like a couple of years, it seems like, that it all just went so fast. A friend of mine in LA who's in this film business called me up and she said to me, you don't understand, this never happens like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very lucky and I had very good people to work with. And um, in the prologue, you mentioned, uh, you told the story of two women who uh, were working for Newsweek now, uh, or in 2009, it was uh, Jessica Bennett and Jesse Ellison, who were basically kind of going through a similar situation, not quite as pronounced as you were, but um, kind of the same sexism atmosphere even now. When they approached you and they started telling you their story, were you surprised that this issue was still going on in the magazine even after everything that you guys went through? Yeah, I mean, we I was very surprised. I mean, they were, as you said, they were writers at Newsweek, so we couldn't even be hired. So that was good. They were being hired out of college and Jesse Ellison out of Columbia Journalism School um, as writers right away. So that was already a big jump. And, uh, and this, there was a third woman, Sarah Ball, as well. Um, and so they were doing very well, and they thought they were doing very well until they started looking around about a year and a half or two years into their careers and realizing that the guys who came in with them who had similar credentials or even less credentials, you know, were getting better assignments or moving ahead a little bit faster or getting better paid. And sort of what interested me, and this was before they knew about our lawsuit or had met any of us, they just sort of thought it was them, you know, that maybe they weren't good enough, that maybe these guys were just that much better and everything. And so when they discovered the fact that there had been a lawsuit, one of the men in the library who had been there a long time said, you know, 40 years ago, a group of women sued Newsweek for similar feelings. Um, when they found out about the lawsuit and then they started calling some of us who were mentioned in the book that Susan Brown Miller wrote about um, the women's movement that mentions the women's, uh, the Newsweek suit. When they started talking to us about sort of our situation 40 years earlier and everything, they then they began to realize that, you know, it wasn't them. It was this system was still in place in some ways. And, you know, that's true still. I mean, we can look around our culture today and there's the things we thought with our movement, the second wave thought we had solved with legislation. And we thought, well, once we get these laws on the books, it'll be fine. No, I mean, we still are seeing, you know, sexual harassment, pay inequality, pregnancy discrimination, you know, regular discrimination, job discrimination. So, yeah, I mean, we, we still have a lot to solve. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, just the fact that they didn't know about the, your lawsuit kind of really surprised me that, I mean, I guess I can understand why Newsweek may not want to announce to their employees, like, hey, 40 years ago, right. um, a bunch of women sued us for discrimination, but I, I feel like that's still part of 
their history. And I, I'm, I was surprised to see that it was so repressed that no one really knew about it. And, and the women told me, Jesse and Jess told me that um, Newsweek, when you go there, talks very proudly about its history. You know, it was pro-civil rights and wrote a lot about the black movement. It was anti-war and everything. She said, never discussed, never discussed this lawsuit or the women's movement or anything. Like, left it out of the history of telling early uh, new, new hires about the history of Newsweek. Just wasn't mentioned. So what does like that say? It's almost like when racist people are like, yeah, I've got this one black friend, so I'm not racist at all. <laughs> it's a lot right. like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so the um, the complaint that you filed in the, again, with the EEOC was in um, March 1970. And I love, well, I didn't love, but I got such a kick out of the headlines that were ran after your after your press release or your um press, press conference. conference yeah and the new york daily news uh their headline i did i, I wrote it down i did, i wrote down their lead yeah, yeah. So there was 26 women on the staff of newsweek magazine most of them young and most of them pretty announced today they were suing the magazine yeah yes now, most of them it, young and most of them pretty <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like absolutely vital details for the whole story. Uh, <laughs> how fresh, like I'm sitting here and I could show you my book that I have, I have like parts highlighted and you probably can't see it right now, but I have underlined like in all caps, yes, absolutely. And, <laughs> but it, it's frustrating for me to sit here and read it for you to go through it. How Frustrating was it to see that so many newspapers covering your story just completely missed the mark on the whole point of what you were doing. Yeah. Well, that was an egregious one. And the headline on that story was News Hens. That's what it was. H E N S, News Hens. Yeah, that's what women newspaper people were called then. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, some people wrote a straight story. I mean, the, I think the New York Times headline was something like, um, Newsweek, what was it Newsweek in Revolt? Even uh, something. Well, I can't remember. But anyway, they wrote kind of straight, straight on stories about you know we sued them and that's for systematic discrimination and blah blah blah. But you know, it uh, it didn't get a it got a lot of coverage initially because as you know we timed the announcement of our complaint to the Monday morning that Newsweek came out with a cover story on the women's movement called Women in Revolt. And that's when 46 of us and our lawyer announced that we were filing this sex discrimination. So the idea of these young women suing Newsweek, the Monday they come out with this cover, on the, it made a big story. And we knew that the publicity would get to the editors actually more than, uh, faster than would an EEOC case because they were always black backlogged and it took forever. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, there weren't um, there were stories as each next thing happened. Not at Newsweek, but um, three months after we sued, and because we sued, uh, the women at Time Magazine, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated sued, and then all the women and news organizations started organizing because of all these reading about all this and. Um, and so women at NBC and the Associated Press, the New Haven Register, Newsday on Long Island, 
and then four years after us at the New York Times and also at the Washington Post. So what was happening was every time there was a new suit, they would write about it. Um, and so all of that kind of coverage was happening. Um, and, and we weren't the only industry that were facing this. I mean, the stewardesses were suing. I mean, there was a lot going on um, at the time because of the women's movement and because of the push by now uh, for legal status. Mm -hmm. And so by filing this complaint, you were you're all taking a huge step away from the traditional roles at the time that women were encouraged to play in society. And um, in your book, you quoted uh, your, your attorney, Eleanor Norton Holmes. Holmes Norton. Eleanor Holmes Norton. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, as saying that she had to keep telling you the truth, that you were the creme de la creme. What the hell are you afraid of? You're smarter than these guys. They're, talk they're taking advantage of you, and when the court sees your credentials, their eyes will pop out. Um, would, would you say that convincing yourselves that you were worth more than you were getting was one of the biggest challenges you all had to overcome? Well, I think, you know, we were a large group. In fact, 46 of us had signed that Monday we announced the complaint, but then another 15 came on. So ultimately, we were 60 women. And, you know, within a group like that, they're going to be some women have no doubt. They they have no lack of confidence. They are angry and they really want to do something. They know it's wrong. Other women sort of, you know, feel less secure and less confident about it and are sort of carried on by the dynamics of the group. And there were some women who felt we shouldn't have filed the complaint. We should have gone to management and just said to them, you know, do you realize that this is illegal and, you know, we're being treated in this way? So we had to, yes, we had to convince ourselves and our friends. We, um, Eleanor spent, um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, our lawyer, spent months sort of getting us ready uh, for this complaint because she said to us, you know, you don't know what's going to happen after this. I mean, they can't fire you legally because after you filed a complaint, you're protected. But, you know, there could be a lot of retaliation and resentment and you have to be sure and um, strong that, you know, you're willing to do this. And of course, because there were 60 of us, we doubted they were going to fire all of us anyway. Um, but it might not be easy to go back to work in an office like that. And so she was, I called it sort of the Eleanor Holmes Norton boot camp of sort of toughening us up and saying, you've got to take off your white gloves, lady, you know, ladies, uh, you, you think daddy's going to come save you, but you've got to give that up. You know, you have to st stand up for yourself. I can't, I mean, I don't, I'm not a confrontational person, so I probably would have been the one of the women to say, maybe we should go to management first. I don't, yeah. know if I would have had the courage to go through everything that that you all went through yeah I mean I um, to this day um, Lucy Howard one of the first women and I um, marvel at the fact that 60 women who were organizing and planning to do this never ratted us out over basically a three or four month period. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And I give women, the women at Newsweek, a lot of credit for um, being determined to do this and not 
having any leaks and saying, you know, this is morally wrong, it's illegal and it's wrong and it's unjust and we have to fix it. And I think one of the lessons of the Good Girls Revolt is as much as I love the sort of rabble-rousers and the radicals and, and you do need the pressure from outside, it helps a lot. But our story is that we were able to sort of change the system from within. Um, we loved working at Newsweek. It was a wonderful magazine. It was an important magazine. We were proud to be there. We just wanted to make it better for women. And, um, and I think if people learn how to organize and, um, and quantify what's going on in their workplaces and bring it to management or to people they trust, at the company, um, you can make these changes. And I think you hit on a really good point there with um, the fact that you brought up that 60 women, not a single one ratted you guys out, and you managed to um, work together to bring this forward and bring this suit forward. And we have this stereotype in our society that's perpetuated by reality television that women are cutthroat and they're all out to get each other. and would you say that even in that environment that most of you were supportive of each other, that it was counter to that stereotype, that you all had this one goal together and you were able to work together? Yeah, I mean, I think until that time we were competitive with each other because maybe one woman would be promoted. So that meant all of us were competing for the one slot, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and while each, each of us had some good friends, um, you know, there were a lot of women who we were certainly acquainted with but weren't good friends with and probably were competing with and so on and so forth. But I do think that coming together, banding together to realize that it wasn't each other we should be competing with. It was the system that was keeping all of us down. And that was a big sort of change of consciousness for all of us. And when we realized that all of us were being oppressed uh, and then we sort of really band together and sort of cut through all of those issues of competitiveness and jealousy and all of those things. Um, so I, I do think that talking about common issues and realizing that it's not that person or this person, it's actually a system in place or a culture in place that's keeping you all down because of who you are. Um, that sort of does change your mindset to realize that together you could do something. If you're the only one out there complaining or filing in a complaint, you know, the retaliations can be tough. But if you organize and there's power in numbers, you are much more powerful and much more protected. And that so that kind of sounds like the, the click moment that um, you described as uh, Judy Gold as having at one of the her consciousness raising groups. Now, just as a quick side, were consciousness raising groups kind of a common thing during the '60s? I've, I've before Good Girls Revolt before watching the show and reading the book. I'd never heard of those. Oh, so really? I'm, That's interesting. Yeah, um, it's interesting. The New York radical women, who were very radical at the time, um, they created this idea of a consciousness raising circle basically uh, to talk about our lives, women's lives in a personal way with a small group of women 
each of whom had to speak because the other problem was women wouldn't speak up. So you'd sit in a circle and you'd go around the circle and each person had to contribute. So one person couldn't dominate. Um, and in discussing, you know, what was going on with you at work or home or whatever it was, you would see that this other person had this problem and then that person had the same problem and that person. And then you would sort of realize that it wasn't just you, that there was something going on in the culture and, um, and it was the whole, you know, the whole philosophy of the personal is political to take it out of, oh, it's just me and I can't do it to saying, wait a minute, you know, why aren't any of these brilliant, talented women getting ahead? Something else is going on here. So the, it, they became extremely popular in the late 60s and early 70s. There were men, all over the country, women were in consciousness raising groups. I mean, I was not, although I attended a couple, some people invited me to a few. I, I never found a group I felt that comfortable with, but I have many friends who were involved in consciousness raising groups and Judy Gingold who really started the action at Newsweek she was in a consciousness raising group and that's when she realized that we had to do something not that it was just her or her but that all of us were in this situation I love the concept of the consciousness uh, raising groups it wasn't until the show and then the book that that I actually learned about it and I'm like now I'm kind of like, we need to bring it back. This yeah, we could great. probably benefit from that still today, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've, you know, I've said to, you know, I have a daughter, and um, I've said to her and her friends, you know, why don't you form these groups? I mean, Jessica Bennett, who is the young woman uh, writer in 2010 who opens the book because of this situation that they were facing even then, she has written a very good book called The Feminist Fight Club, and she's starting what she calls feminist fight clubs, which are, which are essentially consciousness raising groups, but you know, more fight oriented. <laughs> um, and you should read her book. It's a wonderful book. It's really meant for your generation. And uh, she has a lot of great tips of what to do and how to do it. And I said, you know, when she, um, she had, she was part of a group that my daughter was also part of, um, of young women who banded together precisely for this reason, professional reasons. And um, they have really encouraged each other to sort of push ahead each of them and, and all of that. And so I, I always say, don't just meet with your girlfriends and whine and complain all the time, you know, figure out what your issues are and encourage each other to do something about it. Well, that's probably the biggest or the most daunting part of it is you know, figuring out, well, okay, this is my issue, but I don't know what I can do about it. So that's probably the hardest part is to form a plan of attack, I guess. Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting, I mean, because people work in different industries and different um, areas, but in this particular group, which I know more about, um, you know, each of the women who work in different jobs have encouraged and helped each other to go in and ask for the raise or push for the story or push to do this or push to do that. So that even though it's not a group effort, they have basically, you know, had their backs and encouraged them to move ahead, which really helps. Mm -hmm. Well, and I still today, I think women are incredibly competitive among each other and very, very much, you know, they feel like, well, I have to put myself first because, you know, this still happens. 
I feel like we could be much more productive if we support each other rather than cut each other down, kind of. But I feel like we still, um, if you look at like with guys in the business world, they're, they're going to be competitive and you don't see that much of the emphasis of, you know, oh, this is a bad thing. You've got that healthy um, competitiveness. I'm part of a paralegal association. I've been on a board with them. Oh gosh, for about five years, technically I took a couple years off, but then came back and it's a large group of women and we're all paralegals. We're all going out for, you know, we have high end jobs and for the most part. And then we also have some competitiveness to try to get those jobs. And there's been very little drama within the, at least within the board itself. We have every now and then you get personalities that clash over right. things, over issues and whatnot. Right. Um, but yeah, you, you don't have that as much really in the professional world, at least that I've seen too much that's been perpetuated by outside forces. It's, you know, we're very professional, very much colleagues yeah. in a situation. Well, there's going to be competition. As mm -hmm. you said, guys are competitive all the time with each other, and it's not a bad thing. Yeah. It's just, you know, separating out that and being bitchy and being mm -hmm. mean versus you know what opportunities are there um for you and and why aren't the opportunities there or if they are there why aren't you going for it and what does it take to go for it mm -hmm. so what was your click moment did, did you have a click moment like judy did when you decided to join the group well yeah judy when judy approached me and i was the fifth person um the fact that she told me that it was illegal that it was illegal to segregate jobs by gender according to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And this was in the fall of 1969. So this is five years later. We didn't even know the Civil Rights Act applied to us. Everyone kept thinking it was much more about black Americans than it was about women, even though there was sex in the actual amendment that you can't, couldn't discriminate against according to sex and um, you know, uh, race and religion and whatever else it was. But somehow we didn't realize it was about women. So um, when she came back and said, you know, this is illegal, what they're doing here at Newsweek, that for me was a click moment because, um, I mean, I actually was able, I worked for a really good guy named Harry Waters as a researcher. I got promoted to be a reporter and then Harry suggested that I start writing as a junior writer. So in the fall of 1969, I was actually a junior writer. I was the only woman on the magazine writing at the time, but I had sort of gotten through. So even though I knew it was unjust and unfair and there were a lot of talented women who were being kept down, it was when she said to me, you know, this is illegal that I thought, oh my God, we've got to do something. This is really bad, you know. And that, for me, was the click moment. You know, each of us came to it differently. Um, Pat Linden, it was interesting, Pat Linden, uh, who was a very good researcher and actually got promoted to be a reporter. She was reporting on Mayor John Lindsay from New York, who decided to run for president and was going down to the Republican convention in 1968. And she was told to turn over all of her reporting to a guy who was going to go to the convention and write the story on him. And that was her click moment, which is, you know, look what they're doing to me. I'd be furious. 
Yeah, she was. So this is, is kind of a technical question, and it might be dumb, but what was uh, what was the difference between a reporter and a writer? So Time created this system, Time Magazine, when Henry Luce created Time Magazine in 1929, and Newsweek copied it in 33. So Henry Luce decided to do a national magazine because he had a very conservative point of view, political point of view he wanted to get across. And he had a lot of writers writing in New York. First, they were just rewriting clips. But he wanted a voice. He wanted a, a political uh, slant to reflect his views. And he wanted a certain kind of voice for the magazine to be, often described at the time as sort of the voice of God, like, this is what you should know. Um, so he hired these guys to be these writers. And then he hired reporters to go out in the field and interview people. But the reporters would then send their files to the writers because there might be a reporter from Atlanta or Detroit or Boston if they were doing a national story. So three of these files would come in and the writer in New York would take all the files and write a national story. And then he hired only women as fact checkers because um, because so much information was coming in and he wasn't they weren't sure like that everything was going to be correct between the reporter and the writer and at the time he thought he was doing a good thing because he was getting women out of the secretarial pool <laughs> and giving them a research job um which certainly was a step up but then you know women were never hired as reporters writers or editors and men were never hired as researchers so that was the system which we were uh filing our complaint against and when um, when the men after I'm kind of jumping ahead, but when men began getting hired as researchers, was there any kind of tension between the men in the research department versus the men who are reporters? Was were, were they still like did they talk down to them or or were they? Did no, they just and, and the men them? didn't talk down to us either. I mean, we worked very closely with the writers. So, you know, they knew that we were smart and we were as educated as many of them were. And we saved them from making a lot of mistakes. And we sent in, you know, I also did a lot of reporting, as did a lot of the other women. They saw our files. They took our information. So we had a lot of respect and admiration for one another. They didn't talk down to us. They, kind of, they appreciated us. It just didn't occur to them as it didn't occur to us. You know, what I say is, you know, we were all raised in this post-war culture where there were certain roles for men and certain roles for women and you sort of accepted it until one day you sort of didn't accept it and that was the click moment for the women and for the men um as i said in the book you know there's a the, the best writer at newsweek peter goldman one of the best writers was married to a professional journalist and had written all the covers on the civil rights movement and he said you know here i was you know writing about the blacks and, you know, being married to a professional woman. And it never occurred to me that under my nose was this whole group of women that were being treated this way. It just, it was his click moment the day we filed our, our complaint. And uh, so you just mentioned uh, Peter Goldman and, and his click moment. And Newsweek was so huge and so progressive on their coverage of the civil rights movement and gays' rights um, at the time, and your um, editor Oz Elliott kind of 
he he had this the same same issue where it never really occurred to him that you know they were reporting on the women's women's movement but he never stopped to think that the same discrimination that women were protesting outside of newsweek was happening in his own office right yeah I think, and he said to me when I interviewed him later, much later for the book, he said to me, you know, I realized that Monday morning when you filed that complaint that the women were right. Um, but he didn't until then, you know. I think just the, the sexual harassment that went on in the office, it, it just blew my mind reading about what some of the women went through. Um, Diane and I spent, I think, maybe like 20 minutes one episode this month going on about that poor woman who I can't remember her name right now, but her boss stalked her and then proposed to her when she got engaged to someone else and then just went off the rails when she turned him down. Yeah. I just, I mean, I, that did happen. And, you know, there was some sexual harassment. Um, I mean, it, you know, People called us, you know, dollies and some people. And, you know, they would, rat, you know, I remember walking down the hall and the guys would sort of, what do you call it, rate you, you know, <laughs> were you a 10 or a 4. Um, and there were inappropriate, some, some people were inappropriately touched from time to time. But, you know, our issue at the time was mostly job discrimination because there wasn't this, Newsweek was a pretty civilized place. This was not a factory floor. You know, we were not in a male-dominated, in that sense, profession. Mm -hmm. And it was thought of as a gentlemanly place. They were highly, high, highly educated people. So it wasn't the kind of, a, you know, outright sexual harassment. It wasn't rampant. There were certainly incidences of it. And oh, sorry, my computer just cut up for a second. Um, now you mentioned your your father was also an accomplished journalist in in his own right, and that he was a really good friend of Catherine Graham. Um, and you mentioned that you were really nervous about how he would respond to your involvement in the lawsuit. Um, do you remember how the conversation went when you told him? that you were involved in it or that you were going to be involved in it? Yeah, I remember calling him up and sort of saying, you know, Dad, you know, tomorrow we're going to be doing this. And um, and I explained the situation about why we were doing it and what the situation at Newsweek was. Um, but, you know, my father had made um, – my father had was also somebody who covered um, civil rights issues in sports. Um so he wrote a lot about the breaking the barrier for Negroes in baseball and Jackie Robinson coming in. And he was writing about the Washington, he worked for the Washington Post, so he wrote about the Washington Redskins, which was a team that was the last team in the NFL to integrate with black players, even though black players were doing extremely well on other teams. And he would sort of excoriate the owner of the Redskins, and he would say things like, well, the color of the Redskins, the the, the redskin colors are burgundy, gold, and Caucasian. So he, once I explained it in the context of that, he definitely understood and thought, you know, that's fine. He's, the, the main thing for him was he was close 
to the Graham family and to Catherine Graham. And he just wanted to make sure that we were not disrespecting her. And I said, no, that it wasn't about her. It was about, you know, her magazine and the editors. Mm -hmm. I found her to be quite interesting, both in the series and from when she was mentioned in the book. Um, how close in the um, series was she to, to real life? Oh, not at all. I mean, yeah, talk <laughs> about a fictional character. The woman who played the owner in, uh, in Good Girls Revolt on Amazon is not at all like Catherine Graham. I think they made this conscious decision to do something completely different. She's not Southern. She did inherit the paper, but she's not Southern. Her father doesn't own a liquor, <laughs> a bourbon factory. Um, and uh, she was a very... Um, very uh, modest person. She was a very um, elegant lady. Um, she herself had been a young reporter and married quite a talented um, lawyer and uh, then stayed home and raised her four children until her, her husband, who then became the publisher of The Post, uh, even though her father owned it, her husband became the publisher. And then when he died, um, rather than sell the company, she stepped in to run it, knowing nothing about business um, and having been home raising four children, but not wanting to sell her family's company. And so she's a fascinating character. And if you haven't ever read her biography called Personal History, it's one of the great, great biographies that won a big prize, too. I think it won the Pulitzer. Hmm. That must have been pretty daunting, even for her to be faced with this lawsuit. And even in your book, you know, you quoted her that she said she found out about the lawsuit and she said, well, which side am I supposed to be on? Um, it must have been a really awkward situation for her to be in as well. Yes, because she was only one of two women who actually owned a news organization. The other was Dorothy Schiff, who owned the New York Post. And, you know, so they would go to these publisher meetings and there'd be two women and all these guys. And I don't think they were treated particularly well either. So it wasn't as if she didn't have an inkling of sort of what this was like. But, but as she explains in her book, you know, she was a little late to feminism. So this was 1970. Um, and when we invited her to join the negotiations, because immediately the editor said they wanted to negotiate after we filed the complaint, so we asked her to, as a woman owner to please come and join the negotiations, and she refused. And she said, no, the men run the magazine, they'll do the negotiating. And, uh, and we were very disappointed because we thought, you know, that would have been a good thing. Um, but later she talks about how she came late to feminism and that actually was meeting Gloria Steinem in 1971, who really explained to her what the women's movement was about. I love that you talk about how she invited Gloria Steinem to sit down with a lunch with her. And was it Oz? I, I didn't write that. No, it wasn't. Time. It was a business guy at the Washington Post. Oh. Um, I love that she basically asked her, like, okay, you tell him what right. she is. Right. So <laughs> she relied on Gloria to sort of <laughs> make the argument for why women could be uh, I think, uh, what do they call them? Delivery girls. You know, people who delivered the paper in the morning, they only had guys. And so mm -hmm. Gloria was saying, you know, really, 
women can do this. Women can throw the paper to the front of the steps. <laughs> and also, you know, a lot of uh, when Catherine suggested Liz Peer to be one of the editors and the other editors kind of shot her down and said, well, you know, it's, it's long hours, it's late nights, and it, she can't do it. It's not suitable as a woman uh, for a woman. And that's kind of, I mean, I, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom of two kids. That's kind of what a stay-at-home mom is. It's long nights, long hours. <laughs> and they didn't have a problem having women do that, but to bring her into a newspaper setting and have her do it seemed to be out of the question. I thought that was kind of... Uh, hypocritical of them. Yeah, actually, she was not, it wasn't Liz Pierre. Catherine Graham was suggesting that they hire Aileen Saarinen, who was at the New York Times writing about architecture. So she was already a newswoman. It wasn't like this was going to be a big leap for her. And yes, they talked her out of it. Oh, she can't do this, it'll be too long, and blah, blah, blah. You know, we used to say that the men at Newsweek believed that writing for Newsweek was a God-given talent that somehow only men was were given it, you know. <laughs> and there were a lot of, I mean, today there are so many women who are amazing writers that I just kind of blows my mind that they never, it never occurred to them that women could write as well or better than they could. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's true. We're seeing a lot of great women writers. And um, at Newsweek at the time, there were five black researchers who worked for the magazine. Um, and since Newsweek was really progressive on covering the civil rights movement, was that considered progressive, having a whole five black women working for them? Well, I think probably we probably had more than time. I'm not sure, but probably. Um, and, you know, they did make an effort to hire some, but there weren't very many black writers and there was maybe a couple of black reporters so they weren't doing so well um they weren't doing great they they probably did a little bit better than others because as you said they were progressive and they were covering um uh, they were covering the civil rights movement and very much for the civil rights movement but um you know it often happens that at the most progressive places there are enough people to actually do something. So you often find like, uh, you know, there were enough black researchers, for example, that, and they really wanted to do something on the basis of race, not just women. So as you know, they declined to join our complaint because they wanted to do a complaint with the one or two black reporters um, saying, you know, there are no black why aren't there any black writers on the magazine and why aren't there more black reporters and black researchers? Um, but if there hadn't been a group of them, like there was a group of women, um, you can't just be one person in one of these kind of hostile workplaces. So it tends to be often more progressive places where you can be a group that has the numbers to be willing to do something. And I thought that division in itself was really interesting that the black women at Newsweek felt that they needed to place their loyalty more towards the race issue versus the gender issue. I, I think it's kind of sad that at the time they they felt like they had to pick a side and that it wasn't more of a um, 
a, you know, we're all in it together, but I, I guess that was kind of like of the time that they really felt like they had to choose. Yeah, I think, you know, it was the height of the of the civil rights movement and there were lots of issues as, as you know, I said in the book that they told me, you know, yes, we want to get ahead in our jobs, but we also have family issues. We have issues about what, how our men are being treated. You know, this is not just the only thing. And, um, you know, it's hard to know what it felt like then uh, to be part of of the civil rights movement. It was uh, it was very energizing and, and exciting. And I think they felt a lot of power coming from that. And so these kind of highly educated, white, privileged women who were just pushing ahead for their jobs, as Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is African-American, said, you know, it was very hard for a lot of black women to join with white women like that at that time. It just was very difficult. Although, you know, she said if she had known, she would have convinced them because Eleanor always felt that the black women should be part of the women's movement and was one of the founders of the National Black Feminists or Feminist Organization. Um, and one of the women, as you'll see when you get to the end, who um, one of the researchers who went on to become a very distinguished journalist, Diane Camper, said, you know, looking back on it, you know, she's not sure she would have made this decision the same way because she realizes that a lot of discrimination she has faced is also because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. But I think that's one of the great things about your movement, you know, about young people today, which is the sense of intersectionality, that it's not just gender or race or class, but it, it, it's everything. So I think that's a big improvement. Yeah, um, I think I have uh, in my notes, I have Diane Camper. She, on one, in one of your interviews with her, she said at the time there was more identity with race than with gender. Um, so it's interesting to see like the evolution that she, that she went through. At the end, she realized that it was a more universal movement for all women versus you know, women than then white women versus black women, and then the whole subdivisions that came after that. But that still exists today, you know, within the women's movement. We have all these different factions, too. Absolutely. Um, now, after, uh, after you filed the, a complaint with the EEOC, um, you had the meeting with management, and you signed the memorandum um, that, you, that you came, that you agreed with, um, management for and they kind of outlined the steps that they would take to correct the problem and one of the steps was that they would allow women to take this writing test to move up to um, to writer what was the writing test like because so many women either declined to take it or they took it and failed it and it just kind of sounds like this really daunting thing that they had to do well, basically, they gave them stories to write. It wasn't a test in the sense of answers, questions and answers. It was literally, here's a story, go out and report it and write it. Or here's a file, take the file or files and write it. And so, I mean, what's interesting about, first of all, three women were brave enough to step up and say, I, I, will, I will try, I will, I will do a writing tryout. And... Um, one of the women, Pat Linden, had been published in the Atlantic Magazine and the New York Times Sunday Magazine, had done a cover story. And Mary Plachette had been published in The Voice. And so these were women who were getting published outside of Newsweek. It's not like they'd never written before. 
And yet all three failed their writing tryouts. Why? Because we felt that the editors, the senior editors, um, did not want them to succeed. And that was uh, an attitude among a lot of the middle managers at Newsweek. Not all, but, you know, a lot of the men resented the fact that we aired our dirty laundry in public, that uh, we were affirmative action women. In other words, the only reason we'd get ahead was because we were women or we were black or Latina. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, feeling about women weren't talented enough to do this. And, and so you were actually, you went on to become the first female senior editor of Newsweek after the entire ordeal. What was... What, was, what did that feel like to come in on your first day in this new position? And <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was flattered, but I was terrified, as most of us are, on the first day of a new job. Um, and, you know, I mean, I had been at Newsweek for 10 years then. So I knew the system. I knew the people. I knew the players. I was pretty comfortable in sort of figuring out what to expect from people. Um, but I also felt that since I was the first, as any first feels in their field, that, you know, you're carrying your whole race, gender, class with you and that you better succeed because if you fail, they'll never appoint another woman or another Latina again. So there's just this enormous pressure on you not to screw up. And that's what I was most afraid of, you know, that I, that I not fail. Mm-hmm. I know uh, we're coming up on our hour, and there are definitely a bunch of questions that I didn't get to. Um, Diana, was there anything that you definitely wanted to get to before the end of our hour? And, and I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing. I mean, I've just been enjoying, I've been so quiet this episode, but I've just been enjoying learning and hearing these stories. So I'm just enjoying listening to Lynn talk. So. That's why I've been quiet. I don't have any other questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I am curious, is there any hope that Good Girls Revolt will continue after the first season? Oh, I know. Um, well, certainly not on Amazon. And Sony owns it. And I think they've approached some people about it. But so far, I don't think for various reasons, you know, it's somebody already has a show like that, somebody doesn't want to do period pieces, somebody doesn't, you know, whatever it is. At the moment, it doesn't look like anybody's going to pick it up for a second season, but, you know, you never know. I don't know. So I think it's like, so far, the best limited series on television. <laughs> it's so much fun to watch. And, I mean, even re going back and reading the book and going, you know, there's, I had no idea that, that you just, decided to sue a second time after the first complaint was filed. Uh, I think that was huge that after going through everything that you went through, you still, you know, decided, okay, well, we're, we're getting a lot of flack now, but things aren't changing. We, we still need to do something. I think that was amazing, very courageous of, of everyone. Yeah, I mean, I was flabbergasted that, you know, a year and a half later, some people had gotten promoted and some people had gotten new titles and some money. So I was amazed myself that there was still this outrage that things weren't better and that we hung together again, 
you know, given all the retaliation and who knows what was going to lie ahead to file a second time. I mean, I agree. I think it took a lot of courage on the part of the women. And I think it shows a ton of loyalty too that, you know, you could have, you, you were all, you know, very well educated. You were all accomplished. You could have just as easily quit and gone to another newspaper or another magazine who would hire you as writers. I think it showed tremendous loyalty that you stayed with the magazine and, and fought to make it better um, instead of just leaving. Well, Newsweek was a really an, an extraordinary place to work then. I mean, it it's not a place you easily left when you looked around to say, where else would I want to work? There weren't very many places like Newsweek. Uh, what it put on the cover was really important. It really did set the agenda. It was a hot magazine. And so I think all of us really were, as I said, proud to be there and, and excited by the work. Um, and it was really a great place to work. It was a fun place to be. Well, I think that's just about our hour. I could probably keep you here for <laughs> another hour easily. Um, but I don't think anyone else would <laughs> want to listen to me. But um, but thank you so much for coming on. It was so uh, fun reading your book and, and picking your brain about it was wonderful. Well, thank you, Michelle. And thank you, Diana. Really, you. I've enjoyed it. And uh, let me know what you think. Please write me and tell me what you think, both of the series and the book. I always like to know what you think was good, what you think could have been better. I would really <laughs> love to know. Absolutely. And next week, um, we will be starting our April book which are actually two books. Diana is going to be reading Guests on Earth by Lee Smith, and I'll be reading Z by Therese Ann Fowler. So we'll be launching our month of Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh. So um, everyone pick a side and pick a book, and um, be sure to read along with us. Both authors will be joining us at the end of the month, so it will be a lot of fun. Well, that's great. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Diana. <laughs> Thank Sorry, you. I like totally steamrolled this entire episode. <laughs> but I hope everyone enjoyed and have a wonderful night. Thanks, you too. Thank you. you.